Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. My guest today is my good friend Darren Marvel. Darren is an entrepreneur, the CEO of Issuance, and the co-founder of Trojan Horse Media Group. They've just created an original series called Going Public, which follows the stories of five founders on their journey to a Nasdaq IPO. What I like about the show is that it allows viewers to invest in the actual IPOs themselves. That's right, the audience can invest. How cool is that? Darren Marble, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Pamela. Welcome it, to New York. I actually don't think I've been in New York on a day like this. The weather is perfect. It so is. I'm going to try to relish in this moment because I know this will be a moment in time in this city, right? Right. Yeah, no, the weather is amazing right now. It's fall. It's cooling down, but, you know, it's like perfect. Usually when I come here, it's hot as hell or cold as you know what. But today is an exception, so I'm going to enjoy the week as much as possible. It will be sad to leave. Well, I'm glad you're here. Welcome to the jungle, as I like to say. What are you up to in New York this week? I'm here raising capital for a company that I launched two years ago called Trojan Horse Media Group. And here's the analogy. So have you seen the show Shark Tank? I have. So a lot of people have seen this show and a lot of people love this show. And the concept is the entrepreneur pitches their business and you've got four rich judges who may or may not invest. Well, what if there was a television show where the audience could invest? That's exactly what we're doing, but in a really big way. And so we're launching a television series called Going Public, where we follow the stories of five founders who are on a journey to take their companies public to NASDAQ through an initial public offering or IPO. And anyone who watches this show can invest in the IPOs at the IPO price. And if and when the company IPOs, those investors are now liquid, which just means that they can trade their shares. So you could buy $1,000 of an IPO on a Tuesday and have those shares clear, settle, and trade the following Monday. Now, if you thought that this company that you saw on television could be the next Amazon or the next Netflix, you can hold those shares 5, 10, 15 years. Maybe it increases. So that's uh, why we're here in New York. We're here raising money for our show. I love this idea. Thanks. Who came up with this idea? Um, a good friend of mine, Todd Goldberg, who I've known for a number of years and our wives are friends back in LA. They used to be teachers. Um, he had seen me take a few companies public using uh, a new securities exemption called the Regulation A-plus exemption. Uh, and this went into effect uh, in mid-2015. It allows private and now reporting companies to raise up to $50 million to generally solicit or market their deal. And most incredibly, it allows retail investors, so everyday Americans, to legally invest. And Todd had seen uh, my company at the time, CrowdfundX, market what became an historic IPO to the New York Stock Exchange. And so he calls me up and he congratulated me and he says, dude, what if we put these IPOs on television? And that became the genesis moment for this company. That was about two years ago. And why was it a historic IPO? It was the first time that a company used the Regulation A-plus exemption to raise capital and then close their round and list their shares to a national securities exchange, which in this case was the New York Stock Exchange. So there's obviously been a lot of IPOs before this, but this was the first that used this new exemption to do it. And what that meant is that there were everyday Americans, retail investors, that were able to buy into this IPO. And I believe the the stock went out at $7.50 a share. And within a matter of days, it was trading up at $20 a share um, and stayed there for uh, a number of weeks, maybe even a few months. So it was a really uh, fun time. And uh, we got to go to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, and they have these incredible ceremonies, and it was just a lot of fun. That is so exciting. Real quickly, what is the A-plus? In 2012, Obama and uh, Congress signed into uh, law the JOBS Act, and the JOBS Act was designed to make it easier for small businesses to raise capital mm -hmm. and also to level the playing field for everyday Americans, to give them access to investment opportunities that they previously might not have had access to. In June 2015, uh, one of the securities exemptions that was part of the JOBS Act called Regulation A+, actually went into effect. So a lot of times with these, these laws, they're, they're signed into law, but they don't get rolled out for months or in some cases years in this case. Right. So Reg A+, um, went into effect in mid-2015, 
and we were involved in some of the earliest uh, IPOs and uh, companies that were able to use this new tool to raise capital from retail investors and really got in on the ground floor. Uh, and we think that this show is now another game changer for the industry at large. So this is exciting because anyone can get in on these IPOs. Anyone. And if you look at what's happening on a macro level, you see these companies like Uber and Lyft that are going out and they're having these big IPOs and the stocks are trading down immediately because they were grossly mispriced by their bankers. And that means that the retail investors who buy these bloated companies, the shares of these companies that have remained private for way too long, 10 years or longer in some cases, there's nowhere to go uh, for those stocks but down. And so you've got the early investors, the early employees and founders that uh, are essentially cashing out when these retail investors come in and buy the stock. And in, in, in a lot of ways, they're duped because they've heard of these companies, they use these apps, you know, we use these apps all the mm -hmm. time in our daily lives, but we've never had a chance to invest in these companies. Um, the money is made early on in the angel round, the series A round, the series B round. And so by the time they go public, uh, if the company is mispriced, which in a lot of these cases they were, retail investors left are left holding the bag and they own a stock. Uh, they bought it, let's say $60 a share, and now it's trading at $40 a share. Uh, it's really uh, unfortunate and so our objective is to level the playing field and allow everyday Americans to buy into companies they know and love uh, at much earlier times in these in the life cycle of these small businesses. So they're known as small cap IPOs, and our goal is to bring back these small to medium investment opportunities uh, to the U.S. Yeah, this is really great because by the time a regular person like me can invest, it is bloated. We've seen this time and time again, right? And look what happened with WeWork. I mean, just yeah. an utter disaster. You know, they were trying to take this company out at a $47 billion valuation. And when it hit Wall Street, all the research was bad. All the analysts were looking at this with, uh, you didn't even need a microscope. It was just glaringly obvious that this was a bad investment uh, with poor corporate governance. And they tried to very quickly and unsuccessfully address these issues. They cut the price back. They cut the the power of the CEO back, who's now been ousted, of course. And uh, the end result is that they've withdrawn the IPO completely. This company's not going to IPO anytime soon, uh, if ever. And so we just see deal after deal that have been taken out and um, at, at mispriced valuations. And these companies, of course, are losing gobs of money. They don't have viable business models. They're losing more money than they make. And these are generally uh, bad investments for retail investors. And so we think that there's an opportunity to change that. And that's what we're out to do. And what's going to happen to WeWork now? What do you think? I don't know. I think if you, you know, read between the lines, there is a very real possibility that in the next few weeks, even days, you're going to see a lot of really intense, hardcore investigative journalism uncover potential fraud. Um, and that's that's where this may end up. You know, potentially this could end up like a Theranos, you know, the mm -hmm. bad blood and the Silicon Valley founder who kind of wooed all of these big tech investors and, you know, people in the military. And it was a total scam. I mean, to a large degree, they're buying into like the personality of this of this business, right? Cult, cult of personality. And that works to a degree. It can work with certain investors and it can get certain types of investors excited. But it turns out it's a terrible way to run a business and to scale a business. It also turns out that these people are probably ill-equipped to run a publicly traded company too. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's one thing to to have belief in this person that they're going to run the business and they're, they're a great leader, but also you can't buy into the, you know, the woo-woo yeah. of it. I don't, I don't think the prospects for WeWork look good. Well, we'll follow that one. We'll follow that for yes, sure. Yes, we will. So back to the show, what kind of companies do you think you're going to initially have on? What kind of startups? So season one, we're going to focus on um, five entrepreneurs, five founders. And the industry that we're looking at right now is um, consumer products. So we're looking for high growth consumer products that have that growth has been driven by some virality, social media marketing, paid media marketing, 
So a physical, tangible product that has a large customer base and is building a brand. And some of these brands have the potential to scale very quickly. They could go from $10 million to $20 to $50 million in a matter of three years. So I'd say we're looking for consumer product companies that are generating $20 million to maybe $100 million, $125 million in top-line revenue. And importantly, for season one, we want to have a diverse cast of founders. We want to have female founders. We want ethnic founders. And we're very determined uh, to make this a show that is inclusive um, of a diverse uh, group of, of founders and entrepreneurs. And how do you evaluate like scalability? Like, how do you know that they're going to scale? They can't just have one product that that's popular now, and then once people have it, they don't need it anymore. Look, it's a great question, and and the truth is, there is no formula. There's no guarantee that you know, any of these companies will be massively successful. Um, and so, to that end, we've partnered with an investment banking firm in Southern California called Roth Capital. They're a small cap underwriter, and they've helped raise more than $50 billion for small cap public and private companies over the last two decades. And the role that Roth will play is to help us source deals, to diligence these deals, which means to look at the founders, make sure there's no bad actors among the principals, the board members, and uh, ultimately to comp these deals out to find other companies in the same industry that they can use as benchmarks to determine a fair and reasonable valuation that will then take these companies out to the market to. And we're really relying on them to help us identify quality companies um, that have good foundations in place to build a scalable business. And how long would these businesses have already been around? Like, are they fairly, are they a couple of years in? Like, At least two years, but in a lot of cases, five, sometimes 10 years. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, the difference here is this is not mom's cookie company that started in a basement three months ago. These are companies that have probably raised millions of dollars in previous rounds of of, uh, financings and venture capital. They might have uh, billionaire board members. So these are established startups uh, in some ways. And I guess that's even that's a relative term, right? Um, But probably five years on average, these companies will have been in, in operation for. Okay, so they're still considered startup even after 10 years or between five and 10 years. Exactly. It's totally relative. You know, you look on Wall Street and Uber is considered a startup by a lot of people. So these are earlier stage startups, I think, uh, relative to that term, maybe. Okay. Is it similar to crowdfunding? Well, these companies wouldn't need to crowdfund, though, right? Well, this is actually a form of equity crowdfunding. Okay. And so what that means is that retail investors are able to buy shares in these companies. They own a piece of the underlying asset. Um, now, when you know crowdfunding has is, is really become a bastardized term, there's Kickstarter and Indiegogo, which are still around after all these years. And those are rewards-based crowdfunding platforms. You, you know, donate essentially $10 or $20 and you get a perk. You get a t-shirt or a signed DVD, for instance. Uh, in this case... So there's no financial or equity return none with at the all. rewards-based crowdfunding? None at all. And in this case, the people that invest are buying shares in the company. And if these companies succeed in having an IPO, then they can trade those shares, just like you could trade shares of Apple uh, or another publicly traded company, Tesla, et cetera, et cetera. What is the biggest risk for doing something like this as an investor? The risk is that investors could lose some or all of their money in any one of these deals. And so disclosure is of paramount importance uh, in terms of how we launch this series, uh, as is compliance with federal securities laws. Anytime you make an investment, there is some level of risk. There are some investments that are lower risk, uh, and you are less likely to lose some or all of your money such as bonds or treasury bills. Then you have public equities. Those might be a little riskier. Um, What we're talking about are small cap public equities, which have even more risk. But when you make an investment in an asset class that has more risk, there's also more upside, right? So if you look at the returns that the early investors in, let's say, Amazon uh, generated, you know, that company raised $57 million dollars in 1997, it was the true. It was a true small cap IPO. Um, the investors who bought shares of that company then have generated massive returns, right? And now, granted, these returns were over 20, 25 years. So, where you have more risk, there's generally more reward. 
And the ability for an investor to understand that risk uh, is of paramount importance. And in fact, with this securities exemption, Reg A+, the issuer, which is the company that's raising capital, has to file a very detailed disclosure document with the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is the SEC. And this document lays out, among other things, all of the risks associated with the investment so that retail investors, if they're interested in reviewing this document, which admittedly a lot don't, at a minimum, they have the opportunity to go through this document in detail, look at the performance of the business to date. What are the historical financials? Is this company making money, losing money? What are their key metrics and data points, traction, but also the risks? What are the risks, the industry risks, the personnel risks, the cash flow risks, so that if they do invest, whether it's $500 or $50,000, they go into it knowing what, what the risks are and what the upside is. And what if the IPO doesn't happen? It's a great question. It happens all the time. Um, Companies attempt to IPO when they fail for different reasons. They don't raise enough money. They don't meet the listing requirements of NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. And so, you know, part of the objective with this show is to show companies in this process, which, you know, to your point, it's not a guarantee. Some companies might come out trying to raise $15 million and they end up raising five. Um, so some companies may keep that $5 million and remain private. Some may uh, not qualify to list to NASDAQ, but they may be eligible to have their shares quoted and traded on uh, OTC Markets Group, which is uh, an alternative trading system. It's maybe a level below NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, and some companies may not meet the minimum requirement to close their offer. If a company goes out and says, they need $10 million in, in funds to actually close the round, and they raise nine, then technically they can't close the offer. They have to return the, the money back to investors. So there's all types of uh, scenarios here that are at play. Our goal is to see most of these companies be successful in raising capital and, and having an IPO, but certainly some will fall short. And this will be on the show if they don't IPO? That's correct. So It's, it's all out there for the world to see. At what point does the risk begin for the potential investor? So when an individual investor makes an investment in one of these deals, at that moment, they are taking on some risk. What happens if the company successfully IPOs is that the shares that you invested in are now liquid. That means you can actually trade those shares, uh, provided that the stock has liquidity, there's enough volume, or you can hold the shares. Now, if the company, let's say, doesn't meet the listing requirements of NASDAQ to effectively IPO, but the company has uh, put out there that if they raise any money, they're going to keep that capital, then investors own shares in a privately held company. So the company does not IPO, they don't list, and investors, let's say, in aggregate have invested $5 million into ABC company. You now own shares uh, in a company that is private, and so you can't trade those shares and the way you potentially make a profit is in a future IPO, or if that company is acquired in the future. That could be six months, could be five years, um, and it also may never happen as well. All three of those are possible outcomes. Okay, so I turn on the TV and I see your show. How do I do my diligence? How do I do my research? And what is the time frame around this where I can invest? So each episode is 60 minutes, and there's going to be one company featured per episode. Prospective investors uh, who want to make an investment will go to our website, goingpublic.io, and they are able to uh, find all the disclosure and information about the business. And what's interesting here is that they're not required to invest immediately. So when the companies are featured, they're featured in what's called a test the waters mode. That means that they're not yet SEC qualified. They will then immediately after the episode airs become SEC qualified. And then they will fundraise for four to six weeks. That means that anybody watching the show will learn about the company in the episode. And then as soon as the next day, be able to actually make an investment, but they're not required to. They have four to six weeks in which they can diligence, research the company, talk to friends and investment advisor. And then four to six weeks later, the company will then close the offer and hopefully IPO. And will the potential investors you know, be able to reach out directly to the companies and the CEOs, the founders, and ask them questions? Or would they kind of funnel it through like any type of FAQ through you guys? 
So there's a live chat feature that we're integrating into the Going Public site that will then be manned or operated by the company that's raising capital. So if there are 100 people that hit the site, let's say right as the show goes live, or 500 people, and they have questions, in real time, they can get answers or information from the company. They will have a question about the valuation. They have a question about the business model. How does this investment process work? What's the risk? Um, all of those questions will be able to be addressed uh, and answered in real time by the company themselves. And some of these, like, this could really blow up on social media. Well, that's that's the objective is, you know, look, we, we have a, a slide in our deck from Nielsen that says 70% of people that watch television have another device in their hand. That's a phone or a tablet. When I watch TV, I'm on my phone 100% of the time. So am I. Right? So... And we also have another um, multiple reports that indicate that viewers are interested in participating, that when given the chance, American Idol, the opportunity to vote, Big Brother, when you have the ability to allow the viewers to participate, they're actually eager to participate. And so this is a highly interactive television show. There's a broadcast component. You're watching your television. There's an online component. You can indicate interest or invest in the deal. You can ask questions. You can talk about it on social media. This is all about fan participation, audience participation. This is an interactive series. And that's at the heart of what the show is all about. It would be great to see like, you know, so-and-so invested and they share it on social media. Or, you know, when you're watching like a live stream and, you know, you see the hearts and the likes going on. Like if it showed like so-and-so just invested That's exactly, to, to show something like that actually happening in real time. That's exactly how it will work. It would really like catch fire and people will want to jump on and do it themselves. That's the opportunity here. That's how it will work. That's amazing. This is kind of on the public stage, right? It's, so, on, it's on the public this stage. This is on the public stage, let's say. Yeah. So the social proof, you know, whether this doesn't happen, whether this happens, it's out there. It's out there. Now, here's what's interesting for these companies. The companies that are featured in the show are likely to not only raise millions of dollars. In fact, we're forecasting that every company we feature is going to raise at least $10 million online. That's just the retail piece. That's actually exclusive of any institutional capital that our banking partners, Roth, bring into the deal. But on top of that, you know, imagine it's a company that, I don't know, it's a, a women's clothing company and they sell dresses, high-end fashion, you know, luxury there's a high probability this company will generate revenue from the exposure. So people that are watching this show are not only potential investors, they're also potential customers. And that means that the brand equity these companies are going to be able to generate is truly enormous. They could raise $10 million. They could also generate two, three, four million dollars um, in new revenue because they're acquiring customers by having their product featured during these 60-minute segments. So these are 60-minute segments. We're going to produce this show over several months, and then the ultimate content for each company is boiled down into one 60-minute episode. Um, but we think it's a really compelling incentive for companies to apply to be featured uh, for the Going Public series. And this week, we're launching our site, which is goingpublic.io. And that's where companies that are interested in learning more about the show can apply to be on the series. Do you have any early applicants, anyone you're looking at? We, we do have a number of early applicants, and we have to keep it confidential for now, but <laughs> we will be announcing soon. So where is the show going to appear? What network is it on? How are people going to watch this? So we have a verbal from the world leader in business and finance news uh, who has made a commitment to buy this show. And due to the fact that it is being negotiated at this very moment, we're not at liberty to disclose who that network is. Uh, but I can say that they have the wealthiest audience of any pay TV channel in the U.S. based on average income. So there's a hint. Well, that's going to be some great exposure then. <laughs> we hope so. Do you think they would run into any problems with like manufacturing and able to deliver product with such huge exposure? You know, that's a great question. I think that's an issue on shows like Shark Tank, where these companies don't have the manpower or the resources, and they, they get on you know Shark Tank, and they're on national TV, and they're overwhelmed with demand, and the sites crash. Right. I don't think that's going to be the case for these companies. These companies may have 100, 200, 300 employees. They've got you know a supply chain process in place, and will likely be well-equipped to manage the, um, you know, the the volume of orders that come in as a result of, of being on it. How many companies IPO per year? Is this show going to be weekly? 
the show is going to be 10 episodes and each episode will feature one company. And so there may be a follow-up in the second half of the season where the company you saw, the companies you saw in episodes one, two, and three now conclude with an IPO in episodes five, six, and seven. Um, so it's a 10-episode season. Each episode is 60 minutes. Um, to answer your question about how many companies IPO a year, look, the general trend uh, is really bad. In the last 20 years, the number of companies that IPO annually has decreased um, tremendously. So they're, and now what we're seeing is the private markets, right, are, they've actually grown seven times faster than public markets. And there's a multitude of reasons why that is. But the bottom line is there are less public companies today than there were 10, 20 years ago. There are less companies every year choosing to take their companies public. And our goal is to bring back the small cap IPO. When companies go public, uh, they create jobs. They allow retail investors to buy into equities that can potentially appreciate in value. Uh, the, they're required to provide um, transparent reporting, uh, whereas you don't have that transparency um, uh, or valuation information in private markets. And so we think it's a good thing when companies decide to go public, and our goal is to increase the number of IPOs and increase the number of publicly traded companies in the U.S., Speaking of transparency, I wanted to ask you a little bit about what's happening with Brooklyn Nets guard Spencer Dinwiddie. That's a big story. So here you have um, a 26-year-old point guard for the Brooklyn Nets. He's not a LeBron James, but he is a a great player. Dinwiddie is a great player. Uh, I think he scores like 16, 17 points a game, a couple rebounds. And what he is trying to do is, is truly extraordinary. He's attempting to tokenize a portion of his contract with the NBA and allow investors to buy into uh, what is you know a tokenized security and then earn interest uh, based on his performance as an athlete over the next two or three years. So he's the first pro athlete to kind of turn his contract into a digital investment. He is the first pro athlete to try, and try is the key word here, because right now um, the NBA has essentially shut this down, and they have said, you can't technically do this. This violates um, the bargaining agreement with all the players, and uh, you know there's a clause in that agreement that states that players in the NBA cannot assign or transfer uh, their contract, uh, and so they're, they're claiming that this is a transfer or you know, a signing of a contract, and therefore they're shutting it down. Uh, Dinwiddie is pushing back and suggesting that it's something else. So he wants to meet with the, you know, executives and decision makers at the NBA and see if he can convince them uh, to let him do this. But he's not assigning it. It's it's completely separate from his contract with the NBA, as far as I understand. It depends on who you ask. Um, I think, you know, this this whole idea got a lot of people in blockchain uh, and crypto really excited. And, Essentially, what he's doing is he—it's it, a way for—it's um, a way for him to get more money up front. So he—and there's other benefits as well. But you look at this contract; it's a three-year, thirty-four point four million dollar contract, and so that thirty-four million dollars is paid out year over year. And so the year one fee is sixteen million dollars, and then he gets paid after year two and paid after year three. Um, there's also an option; it's essentially a bonus in year two that he's eligible for based on how he performs in the first year. And so what he's doing is he is going out to uh, investors in this community and saying, look, I am willing to um, give you an interest rate on your principal. The minimum investment he's proposed is 150000 It's a low single digit interest rate uh, that's tied to his NBA contract. And what will happen is if the if he earns that option in year two, then the interest rate uh, will will look like a 15% return. So someone that invests a million dollars at the end of this investment will be, they'll get their million dollar principal back plus another 150000 in interest. Um, and so it's a way for Dinwiddie and potentially other players to get the lump sum up front. Um, he wants to tokenize 40% of this contract. So Maybe a good analogy is people are familiar with the lottery, right? Someone wins the mega millions. It's $100 million in prize money. And you, you, 
people are generally familiar with this concept that the winners of these lotteries can get paid month after month for 30 years, or they can take a smaller lump sum, right? And so what he's trying to do here is get a smaller lump sum for the value of this contract. So he as a player gets money up front. And in exchange, the investors have what looks like a very uh, low risk investment opportunity to invest principal and earn a small interest rate based on his performance year after year. So it seems like the investors, the investors can't lose in any case. I wouldn't say they can't lose because again, like we said, every investment has risks. And so I don't think there's an investment where you can't lose. That would probably misleading, be misleading for me to suggest. But I think it is a relatively low risk investment because this tokenized security is backed by a three-year $34.4 million contract. So it makes it a lower risk investment relative to something else. That makes sense. And the reason I brought up the transparency aspect is because it's built on blockchain technology, right? Correct. So you can't really lie. It's Everything is public and everyone can see what's going on. That's correct. It's all on a distributed public ledger. So everything is visible to the investors. It's fully transparent, black and white, and it's a tokenized security. And maybe we can talk about what that is. A tokenized security, which is also known as a security token, is a digital asset that is compliant with federal securities laws and that's run on a blockchain. And in this case, Dinwiddie wants to create an ERC-20 token. So this would be a tokenized security that runs on the Ethereum blockchain. Um, And investors are buying these security tokens that pay an interest rate. I, I don't know if it's monthly or quarterly, but that is correct. It's a tokenized security. So you buy the token just like you buy any other stock or bond, and then you kind of watch it unfold. That's correct. And it's all very structured, so it's like very safe. It's under the every restriction possible. Yeah, so what he's doing is he's using a securities exemption known as Regulation D, a 506C. Um, and the 506C piece, not to get too technical, but was part of the JOBS Act. So Regulation D has been around for a while. The 506C element allows the issuer, in this case Dinwiddie, to generally market or solicit the investment opportunity to prospective investors. And the caveat is that anyone who invests has to be a verified accredited investor. So this investment that he has um, come up with is only available to individuals that make 200000 or more uh, you know, in annual income or have a million dollars in liquid net worth. If they're married, it's $300,000 in annual income and also or a million dollars in net worth. So it's not uh, an investment like the type that we're talking about with our show where anyone over 18 can legally invest. In this case, you have to be an accredited investor to buy into this tokenized security. Right. But the transparency is there's transparency on both in both instances, right? Correct. It's a very it's a very creative and I think elegant solution um, that he's proposed. And, you know, my hope uh, and the hope of my colleagues is that the NBA sees that this is uh, compliant with federal securities laws. It's maybe not in violation of the uh, the bargaining agreement that they have with players. And I think the NBA would actually be very smart um, to let him do this uh, because I, I think it's a step in the right direction uh, for for the NBA, for the players, and for fans who can now become investors. I mean, that's great if people can get involved with this, um, even though maybe not this one in particular because it costs it's a bit more, but... On any level, I mean, it's going to change the game. It's the ultimate fantasy sports play. But it's not betting. We, we, we won't call this betting. It's an investment. But essentially, he's establishing an asset class that's not correlated to, like, legacy markets. So it's not going to get hammered. No, I think it's a really, a really smart play. It's a low-risk investment. He's got this, you know, massive contract. He's going to get paid. He's a good player. It's a way to allow accredited investors to... And by the way, you could consider this a bet to bet on his performance as an athlete, that if he plays well in season one and he gets this $12 million option in season two, he's going to split the profits with the investors in that tokenized security. That's when they end up earning that 15% return. So even though it's enhancing the real like engagement with the fans and enhancing the NBA, are people going to, are they going to look at it like this is betting? Yeah, maybe. You know, I mean, you could say, well, when you buy shares of Apple, you're betting that the stock appreciates. If you are shorting shares of Apple, you're betting that the stock will depreciate or decrease in value. So I think you could use that term and that would be accurate. Okay. So the NBA won't like it for the reason that they think the the contract is being kind of manipulated? I don't think it's being manipulated. 
Um, not at all. I don't think there's there's no way to manipulate this. It's just a creative way to allow fans to make engage a, more, engage and bet to, on to an make athlete. money. That's Even right. for the athletes, they can make money. Absolutely, and the fans make money. So everybody it, wins, and it creates more engagement. So it's good for the NBA. If the NBA is listening, you should you should approve this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're buying it like the token, like you buy any other stock, and you just watch how it unfolds. That's right. And hope that it goes well. <laughs> and he's taken all the proper precautions. Uh, I, th- I think he's built an incredible platform. It's called the Dream Fan Shares Platform. He wants to allow other athletes like him to do the same thing. Well, at the end of the day, it seems like you know you're just going to make money, and just a question of how much you're going to make. Exactly, so. risk reward. And obviously, the players have the incentive to push it as far to play their best and push it as far as it could go. Exactly. Okay, so let's talk more about you. You are a serial entrepreneur. Yes. And you are currently the CEO of Issuance. Correct. So tell us more about Issuance. Issuance is an investor marketing company. We help other companies raise capital so they can build and grow their businesses. And previously, uh, you were with CrowdfundX, which was acquired by Issuance in February of 2018. Correct. Acquired my own company in uh, February, uh, earlier this year, February 2019, CrowdfundX uh, was my legacy financial marketing firm that specialized uh, in marketing regulation A-plus IPOs to NASDAQ, the New York Stock Exchange, OTC Markets Group. Issuance has a technology component to the company, a different set of founders, so we essentially merged the businesses earlier this year. So let's talk more about fundraising then. So what are some of the most like common fundraising pitfalls, and how can, fun- and how can founders actually avoid them? You know, look, for someone who is starting a business for the first time. It's it's your first startup. Uh, you've always wanted to be an entrepreneur, and now you're going out and you're looking to raise capital. The first question that founders need to ask themselves is, are they in a strong position to actually raise money? And the answer may be no for certain businesses and certain people. What I've found through my own personal experience, having launched and built multiple businesses, is that oftentimes the best way to build a business is to defer the financing piece down the road, kick the can down the road, and focus on selling a product or service and generating revenue. And so I think if you were to come out of college or one of these accelerators, and there's a, you know dozens of them or hundreds of them around the country, you might be under the impression that the way to build a business is to go out and raise money. Um, you've got to raise your first million dollars so you can hire a team and build tech. But truthfully... The uh, most successful entrepreneurs that I know usually build a product first, uh, and they sell that product or service, and there's there's some uh, track record of, of revenue growth. And so once you have the traction in the form of, of revenue growth and maybe even positive cash flows, you're now in a much stronger position to raise capital. Now you've got metrics and data to point to. You've acquired 100 customers in the last three months. Your gener- you know, your your run rate is ten thousand dollars a month. Your burn rate is less. How much money you spend? So I think that it's almost a trick question. Founders should focus on generating revenue before they go out and try to raise capital. And how does crowdfunding play into this in terms of raising capital? It's a different kind of fundraising. Can you discuss some of the benefits of crowdfunding as a method of raising capital through like the collective efforts of friends or family? And yeah, so. And, and what I'll talk about is is there's an exemption called regulation crowdfunding, also known as Reg CF, also part of the Jobs Act of 2012, went into effect in, um, I think, June 2016. And this allows a private company or a startup to raise just over a million dollars and generally solicit or market their deal. So if you're a founder, you've got some traction, you've you know built or you've built your product or service, and now you're selling and you want to raise, you're in a better position to raise your first million dollars, you can launch a Reg CF campaign, and you have to use a FINRA-registered funding portal like Republic or Seed, in, uh, Seed Invest or Start Engine uh, or WeFunder. Those are maybe the top four in the industry. And you create a campaign that essentially looks like a Kickstarter campaign, but it's less about your product or service. It's more about your business and the financial opportunity for investors. You might have a video, a campaign page that tells the story of your business. What's your vision, your mission? Um, you you put some graphs up. You know how much revenue have you generated? Who are your customers? What are your forecasts? And then you work with a securities attorney to determine 
how much uh, you're raising. Are you raising a quarter million, half a million, million dollars? What do investors get for their investment? Are they buying shares, equity, or is it debt? What are the terms of the debt if they buy debt? And then you go out and you market the deal and you can raise capital from anyone over 18, your family, your friends, your customers. You can run a PR campaign. You can buy Facebook ads, Google ads, and look to raise capital online. So the benefits of crowdfunding, let's get into that a little bit more. So you're tapping into this wider investor pool to create these fundraising options. And there's probably many benefits to doing it over traditional methods. I think so. And, you know, like we talked about with the series, when when you run an equity crowdfunding campaign, you're not just raising capital, you're actually creating awareness for your core business and your products or services. So here's a quick example. Um, we ran a campaign for an automotive startup out of Phoenix, Arizona, a few years back called Elio Motors. And this is like a three-wheeled car company, um, really innovative business. And they ultimately need a lot of money to, to execute on their business plan and to go into production. Nonetheless, um, they were one of the first, actually the first company to raise capital under the Reg A plus securities exemption. So we helped them raise $17 million online. So about 6,500 retail investors came in. I think the average investment was like $2,500. But because we ran a big PR campaign behind it, Mm -hmm. we had articles in Engadget, TechCrunch, Forbes, Inc., you name it. This company uh, also generated $8 million in pre-sales on their vehicles. So thousands of people went to the Elio Motors website and... um, made a reservation to get a car in the event this company ever produces cars. They're basically getting a number, just like you pre-order a Tesla. Right. And the aggregate amount of reservations from that campaign was $8 million. So now that's a, a high-end example of what can happen. But you use a smaller company that sells $50 widgets, and they're running an equity crowdfunding campaign attempting to raise a million dollars. When you get PR and all this content marketing out there, social marketing, the end effect is that they may also acquire customers in the process. So it's it's a double benefit, if that makes sense. Um, some companies are really good candidates to raise money and generate revenue at the same time. It's a really cool thing. And also, they're kind of validating their concept on these platforms, right? So they're presenting like this concept to, the, to people that kind of gives them an opportunity to validate and refine their offerings. Yes. And and I should mention, there's also risk here. The risk is that when you run one of these campaigns, you're putting your campaign and your company out there for the public to see and potentially judge. And like we talked about a few minutes ago, what happens if a company does an IPO? The same thing happens at these smaller campaigns too. Sometimes you go out and try to raise a million dollars and you find out that there's only 10 people that wanted to invest for you know $20,000 or even less. And so the campaign is essentially a failure. And now you've got this well-documented failure that's out there online and it's archived. You know, for someone's going to Google you and they see, oh, well, you know, this uh, entrepreneur tried to raise a million dollars and came up way short. What does that mean about the founder? What does that mean about the team, the traction? Whereas in a traditional private placement, um, there's generally fewer investors mm-hmm. and it's not as publicly visible. So... Each of these you know, pathways to raising capital has pros and cons, uh, but that is definitely one of the cons for companies that fail in, in an equity crowdfunding campaign. Yeah, that's a little scary. <laughs> yeah, you got to evaluate it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's true. The entrepreneur or, or the, the business, like the progress of the entire thing is being covered by the media. When are people going to be able to tune in and, and check out Going Public, your show? The plan is for season one to air immediately after the Summer Olympics next year. In August 2020. August 2020, they'll be able to watch Going Public. The and countdown for us begins now. So what, what was the reason behind that date? Why are you doing it then? The president of the network that wants to buy the show has given us guidance that that's when he wants to see this uh, program air on primetime uh, on his network. So we're, we're working with the network now. So that's their timeline. And we now have to work backwards to accomplish all the goals and objectives that we need to launch by then. That's very exciting. And when do you think you're going to announce the companies that are going to be featured on the show? Probably early 2020. So right now, we have a mandate to cast for season one. So the network has said, okay, we're going to give you a budget. Tell us who these companies are. What are the founders? Who who are the founders? What do they look like? What are their stories? How did they get here? What are the obstacles they had to overcome? 
What are the profiles of these businesses? How big are they? Are they money-making, money-losing? What are the growth prospects? So we're essentially casting for season one of Going Public right now. And by the end of the year, we have to submit essentially a dozen companies to the network. And then the network will pick five in January. And those will be the five that go into production for the first season. Are you going to uh, feature some of the backstories and the interviews and the process along the way for the selection? A hundred percent. That's where the real entertainment value is. We're hesitant to have this show just be super hardcore businessy. If you look at a business, it's led by people and people have stories. And what we really want to show is the backstories of these founders. The spirit of this show is about entrepreneurialism and the American dream and the spirit of the American dream. And that means starting with the vision of the company, um, the, the mission of the company, the values of the business, and those are intangible. Um, and they're also emotional, right? They can inspire emotion. They can inspire action. They can inspire investment. And so I think it's a great question. We, we absolutely intend to focus on the backstories of these founders to build a foundation for the IPO. Yeah, I love this. I think the backstory is so important and it will inspire so many people, you know, to maybe kickstart their own journey, you know, whether it's doing something like this or getting into crowdfunding. And, you know, they want to know, like, what does it mean to be an entrepreneur? And, and how was somebody an entrepreneur in 2019? Like, it's very confusing right now with the whole job situation and more and more people wanting to be entrepreneurs, right? Worried about jobs and to hear the backstories of these people. And, you know, how they started and where they are now and how they ended up being on your show is going to be like a great thing for them to like latch on to and become inspired by. Well, we agree. And, and it's not just the founders. It's it's the families of the founders. Right. So part of the you know production um, timeline is to have the production company fly out to the headquarters of each of these businesses, not just meet the founders and do a tour of headquarters, which might be generic in a lot of ways. It's to go into the homes of the founders, you know. Who's the wife? Who's the husband? Um, does this entrepreneur have children? What is this founder leaving behind to build this business? Uh, how has that affected him or her personally? How has that affected the loved ones um, of the founder? There's really an intense story behind these companies. You know, founders make a ton of sacrifices um, to build viable businesses, and uh, it's it's not easy. And so it's not just about one person. That one person has relationships with a lot of other people um, that, that know them, love them, care for them, um, are rooting for them. And so those stories are going to be surfaced as well in the series. Yeah, the family, the cast around the founder, right? They are so important because that, that founder is never alone. Never. No one's ever alone. You're never alone. And that it's really important to share the story of those people, too. That's right. And that's definitely part of the whole you know, path of the entrepreneur. <laughs> and, and it makes for some of the most interesting stories. People, I think, they are more excited to hear a little bit of the intimate details of behind the scenes of what, you know, not just the product, but how it came to light, how it came to be. That's it. It's all about the people. What would you say are some of the most common traits that entrepreneurs share? Look, I think... Entrepreneurs are resilient. Um, op entrepreneurs are optimistic. Um, and I'd probably just start and end with resilience. Um, you know, for me in my own journey, it's been a story of 99 rejections in a row and then one yes. And then that one yes is a game changer, opens a door. And then another 99 rejections or no's and then another yes. And it takes, um, it takes a, a truly resilient individual to deal with the rejection, the negativity, the criticism, the doubt, um, ridicule. And you just have to let it wash off your back like a water off a duck. And uh, I don't know if that, that is a trait that is um, you're born with it or it's built up, um, but you, you hopefully you, you can learn that because it's really tough. And so I think more than anything else, entrepreneurs are resilient. They're able to... Uh, deal with uh, that type of rejection and overcome it no matter what. Yeah, I think that resilience is something that you kind of build up and acquire over time, right? No one's just born into this world, world being super resilient. You, you, you take your hits and you, and you roll on and you become more tough over time, right? Toughness. And that toughness is what turns you in, into an entrepreneur if and when you're ready to do that. 
That's right. And I like your story, too. I mean, I was reading a little bit about your background, and I, I believe you went to school for, is it psychology? I was. I was a psychology major until I dropped out of UCLA, at which point I was no longer a psychology major. <laughs> so you dropped out, and you went on to work at these various companies, and then you you did found CrowdfundX? Correct. Founder okay. and CEO of CrowdfundX. I had been uh, in software sales for about 10 years, selling uh, Oracle database and applications to Fortune 500 companies. And so really, I'm a salesperson at heart. Uh, now I've become a marketer as well. And uh, maybe halfway through my career with Oracle, I had this you know, burning itch to leave. I'd seen a couple guys there over the years, guys in their 60s. And I just was like, oh, I don't want to be that guy showing up to Oracle's office in my 60s. I and mean, granted, these people make a lot of money. They do really well. They, they're very successful by all measures. But I didn't want to end up like that. And so... Yeah, I started a company, and uh, it's been a, a good 10-year run since. So you went from sales to marketing to becoming an entrepreneur. So you saw what it was, you saw what you didn't want to become, and you took your hits, and you know you became resilient, and that was your path. It, that was my path, and, and I'll tell you, you know, three years ago, um, I left my day job to go all in on my own business. And before that, I was essentially moonlighting. So I had my day job, I was getting my paycheck every two weeks. But I had my startup on the side, kind of grinding, grinding, grinding. And then at one point, you know, I made the jump. I took the risk. I went all in on my own business. Um, and it's it's worked. And three years ago when I made that move, I was frenetic. I was anxious. I was uncertain. When things didn't work my way, um, I would have panic attacks. I, I couldn't sleep at night. And, you know, there's something about just taking the hits and rolling with the punches. At this point in my career... I'm really, you can't phase me. You know, no one can knock me off the horse at this point. I, I won't say I've seen it all because that's <laughs> not true, but I've seen a lot. And I've been knocked down so many times. You run out of money, a deal doesn't go through, you get sued. All of these things happen when you're an entrepreneur and you run your own business. They're just inevitable. And I'm at the point where I'm kind of in this zone. You know, like when Neo sees the Matrix at the end? <laughs> yeah. And he's like, uh, he's just totally dominant. Like, I kind of have that feeling. No one can knock me off this horse. No matter what happens, I'm going to succeed. And so there's a reassurance in having that confidence um, that any obstacle can be overcome or solved or addressed, whether it's now or in the future. And so I sleep a lot better at night these days than I did. And that's, again, part of that resiliency uh, and an assuredness, uh, having had so many obstacles in the past, you just learn that these are things that come your way and you have to address them and you, you are able to, to, to address them and solve them. And then you're building up also the confidence as you go. So you get through that rough patch, you know, however long it is, and you and you creating this path and finally it becomes more clear. And then you have the resilience and the confidence to go along with it. That's right. And now no one, you know, you haven't seen it all, but you've seen enough, so to speak. <laughs> That's a fact. And now look, you you have this show going public and it's so exciting. Like I'm really thrilled to see that you are creating this this show, which I think is going to be more popular than Shark Tank. We hope so. I think so. Thank <laughs> this you. is this is the next Shark Tank. <laughs> Bring it on. Darren Marvel, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm extremely excited about going public, and I can't wait to see where it goes. Thanks, Pamela. It's been such an honor to be here. You rock. See you soon. And friends, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.